Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Adam Payor's latest book, The New Kings of New York, Renegades, Moguls, Gamblers, and the Remaking of the World's Most Famous Skyline, covers the ups and downs of New York City real estate over the past three decades, a time he refers to as the Second Gilded Age, with stories of the real estate personalities who have transformed New York City into a luxury playground for the 1%. And in it, he reveals all the dirt on, quote, some of the biggest real estate deals ever made anywhere. It's published by The Real Deal and bling, and brings Adam Payor, an award-winning journalist to our show now. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. You begin your book with the opening of the Hudson Yards in March 2019. Why there? Is that uh, a clue as to everything that follows? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I well, when I first started working on this book, I, I was we wanted to follow some of the moguls, you know, through the real estate cycles, some of the personalities. But I also was really fascinated at, you know, just as a New Yorker, how things had transformed from the 1970s to, you know, a place where you could get Hudson Yards and and um, and you could sell an, a bill, an, uh, a condo for one hundred million dollars. And um and as I was reporting it, an arc really sort of emerged on its own, you know, sort of where we were embracing development. Everybody was praising the High Line and, you know, Bloomberg rezoned 40 percent of the city. And then there was a huge backlash. And that really um, kind of culminated at that Hudson Yards ceremony. I mean, just it, it was sort of the centerpiece of, of uh, you know, this idea of revitalizing New York and and uh, and you know, kind of the biggest thing that was done when they rezoned forty percent of the city, and then, but by the time it was finally unveiled, you know, there was you know the governor and mayor didn't even show up because just a couple of weeks before the Amazon deal had been had been scuttled by a big uprising. So it really was a way to talk about the backlash and kind of where we ended up, so, kind of the. So yeah. what did its developers, notably? Steve Ross hoped for it. Did they envision a luxury playground for the global 1% with $35 million penthouses? Well, I mean, the, the situation with Hudson Yards was, um, you know, I looked at the market forces to a certain degree, and um, there were a bunch of tax incentives, but and there was some affordable housing in there, but not as much as, as many people would have wanted. And, uh, and in order to construct the Hudson Yards, they had to build this platform over the the rail yards, which mm -hmm. cost about a billion dollars. So in order to make it profitable, um, they had to, you know, kind of build for the one percent, I guess. And um, and then they recruited a bunch of stores that would kind of cater to that kind of, um, you know, to get high rents, but also um, to draw that type of of uh, of resident. Although it was, again, it was a slightly problematic time. Uh, Neiman Marcus, which was projected as a major tenant, was about to file for bankruptcy at the time that you're describing. Right. Yeah, it didn't. It hasn't necessarily worked out that well. I mean, the jury's still out on, on um, you know, whether Hudson Yards will be successful. But um, just, I mean, getting Neiman Marcus to commit did sort of, it, it brought in a lot of other tenants, a lot of secondary tenants, you know, like some of those luxury brands that you mentioned. Isn't um, and they're it, still there. Isn't its location at the far west side a problem? It's not near transportation. Well, they built, uh, they built an extension of the number seven subway line uh, from, from Times Square. So it kind of opened up that whole area of the city. Um, you know, which is one of the reasons people said it should have done more to serve the city. I mean, you go there, it's almost, somebody mentioned to me, it's almost like being in the, 
you know, in the Shanghai airport or something, you know, these luxury stores that don't have much to do with New York City and it's filled with tourists and, uh, you know, and so people have complained that it could have opened up this vibrant new part of the city. But at the same time, we, you know, uh, we are competing with other cities to draw kind of the best and the brightest. And one of the reasons arguments for it was that um, we needed state of the art office space. Um, the during the event, R&B singer Andra Day sang as a troupe of Alvin Ailey dancers performed behind her, and then they were joined by a group of gospel singers. They're not the sorts of entertainers I'd expect to see at the opening of a project intended to attract upscale businesses and extremely wealthy residents. Right? Yeah, it was it was pretty ironic. I mean, it was just. Uh... It, it, it was just, it's just a very interesting narrative arc of, of how New York City has transformed just because, you know, like I said, in, in the 70s, the Bronx was burning and there was all this crime and people were complaining uh, and, and, you know, they wanted to revitalize it. And this was the final phase of that. Nobody sort of envisioned that it would it would be so ultra luxury mm. uh, and that that prices would price out everybody else. Um, I, I don't know. I guess the reason that they wanted Andre Day was because her song was Rise Up, which to mm. me, it sounded like a, a song to appeal to the oppressed. <laughs> but um, but they were it was really, you know, uh, Steve Ross and Henry Kravis and other one percenters, Martha Stewart climbing there, you know, this 200 million dollar mm. um public art installation. Well, you mentioned, so it was a nice anthem for them, very victorious, I guess. You mentioned that Andrew <laughs> Cuomo and Bill de Blasio didn't show up, but Senator Schumer was there. Also, Martha Stewart, Anderson Cooper, and a man in a big bird costume. <laughs> now, uh, when did Steve Ross become a major player in New York City? Isn't he from Detroit and out of town in some ways? He's the owner of the Miami Dolphins, isn't he? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, well, he he always loved New York and, and uh, he was he started, I think, um, he, he, well, he started off as an attorney in Detroit doing these tax syndications, uh, you know, which was he was basically raising money for other developers. And then in, in 1968, Bobby Kennedy was shot and he decided life was too short and he moved to New York City and he, he was trying to make it on Wall Street. Um, but, uh, you know, he's kind of this brash, confident guy. And uh, he had a falling out with his boss. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it, he had an investment idea and, and uh, it was pitched at the Bear Stearns Investment Committee. And somebody said, well, let's let Steve handle this. And his boss said, I don't have any confidence in Steve. And he, he said, well, you, I don't have any confidence in you. And then he got fired and it was the second job he'd had. So he borrowed some money from his mom and he used sort of what he knew about how to structure real estate deals to get into affordable housing. And, you know, he was young. He was in his early 30s. So Bob, so he, he came here, he was brash, he was fired from a couple of jobs, but then he did go on to become one of the most influential developers in, real, in New York real estate. Yeah, he's just a great salesman. And he also, um, you know, really believed in New York City. And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to profile him is, one, he's a colorful guy who's been around long enough that he, he says what he thinks. Um, and and was willing to be pretty candid but the other thing is um his his sort of his career kind of traces the new york city real estate market i mean he went from building affordable housing when that was sort of the only way that you could survive in new york to building market rate housing he did some stuff down at um you know at battery park city and then uh you know what what I start in the late nineties because he kind of, he did one of the most transformative projects in the city, which was he won the 
the right to redevelop uh, Columbus Circle. And that really was sort of an example of revitalizing the city. I mean, a lot of people complain about Hudson Yards, which he also did, which was kind of for the 1%, but um, the um, Columbus Circle really was, it was built during a time, the Time Warner Center, when Columbus Circle was, you know, there was a homeless encampment there and lots of, lots of um, drug addicts and prostitutes. And there was this sort of zombie building called the Coliseum, um, which nobody thought worked. And, uh, and he, he put together the plan for Time Warner in a way that would, and, you know, I also talked to Joe Rose about this, who was Giuliani's planning czar. You know, there was a lot of thought put into how to activate the space, which was one of the problems with New York City. I mean, which is really fascinating. In the 70s, the city lost a net of almost 700,000 people. So the city was just really empty and into the empty spaces moved a bunch of, you know, there were a bunch of people who committed crimes and there weren't, uh, you know, and, and, and it just, it fed what uh, people called the a vicious cycle. You know, basically people kept leaving, jobs kept leaving, the tax revenue fell, services got worse, people left. And part of this idea that, that really sort of underpinned Bloomberg and, and Giuliani was something that they called the virtuous cycle, which was mm-hmm. if you invested in the city and made it a pleasant place, you could attract all this creative talent and more companies would want to come here and the tax revenue would rise and it would become a better and better place, which is what happened. But then everybody got priced out and there was this huge backlash, which we're still sort of in. But well, um, You profiled the dominant figures in these large-scale real estate developments in the 1990s and 2000s and the ways in which their projects reshaped the city's skyline and communities. How many of them were you able to interview Harry Macklow, Kent Swig, Will Lyon, Ar- Arthur Zeckendorf, Extel's uh, Gary Barnett. Were they all open to discussing this? Yeah, it was sort of kind of like, uh, you know, a movie deal. You know, we get uh, one person attached to the project. And then when you tell other people you're talking to them, they'll talk to you. So, um, you know, I, I forget who I started out with. But, you know, early on, I got I got um, Steve Ross's partner. Uh, and I got Steve Ross and then I got the guys at the Fortress Investment who, who rarely talk to the press and were the bankers for um, a lot of these projects and are sort of some of the only people besides Steve Ross who who didn't go, you know, lose them. Um, Harry Macklow, I was supposed to talk to. He kept canceling. I kept reaching him in places like Paris. But then the real deal, which was the publisher of my book, um, covered his divorce trial in detail and he got really mad. And so he declined to talk to me, but everybody else I talked to, I got Gary Barnett relatively late in the process. But um, yeah, once I had the story and could show that I knew kind of what had happened and that it was going to write about the history and the market forces. And, it was and also to get you, you obviously wanted a lot of insider gossip, which you got. But were you surprised when Rob Spire, who had been a journalist at the Daily News, wouldn't talk to you? You have any idea why? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh I was not that surprised because he'd already told his story to Charlie Bagley of the New York Times for Stuyvesant Town. And it was just a huge black eye and, and really one of the most I mean, I hate to say it about a fellow journalist, but he what he what he and the and the people who took over Stuytown did was really sort of a travesty. I mean, they, they, they did not look very good. So I don't blame him for not wanting to talk about it. You know, they because the market went up so much. 
you had to, if you wanted to win a trophy property like that, you needed to bid more than everybody else. And if you were going to bid more than everybody else, you had to find a way to make the money. And the only way to make the money that would make what they paid profitable was to rely on these overly optimistic um, estimates of how many people they could force out of rent controlled apartments mm. and turn it into market rate. And, you know, and, and eventually that, you know, that didn't work and it, and it really fed this political backlash. I'm not sure. I mean, they were just following market forces and I can definitely understand why he wouldn't want to be associated with that in another book. But, you know, part of the blame maybe lies on the Bloomberg administration for not doing more to protect that affordable housing, whatever it was, it was, you know, a fiasco. And, uh, and it remains and, a problem to this day. Yeah. Affordable housing or Sidetown? Yes. I mean. Affordable housing. Side, I don't know about Sidetown. Has that been resolved? Side, yeah, I mean, down? I think, I mean, the markets kind of took, took it over, right? They just kind of walked away from it. All this pension money that was used to finance it, uh, they're the ones who ate it. You know, all the, the teachers, it was like uh, the California Teachers Union. They lost a lot of money, but then... You know, the people who took it over, I think it was Blackstone who took it over, um, they bought it for much less. So they didn't have to evict rent control tenants to make the money needed. Um, but, yeah, affordable housing is a huge problem. And it's and and I'm not really sure what to do about it. I mean, I was just reading. I don't know if, if, if you've seen this, but, you know, the rents are higher than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think you know, I was just looking at an article. I mean, it's you, in order to to qualify for some for the medium apartment you need to make more than $150,000 a year um, if you're going to make 40 times your wow. monthly rent so so that's that's not sustainable but what to do about it is unclear i mean what really emerged i mean i was i was trying to tell personal stories and try and you know have character arcs and stuff but but from the perspective of of new york city um what was really interesting and this happened in a lot of cities just in um for intellectually, what was interesting is there was this idea uh, championed by this guy named Richard Florida, which was kind of, you know, I was talking about this thing called the virtuous cycle and the vicious cycle, which is what New York real estate people and Bloomberg and stuff talked about. But he talked about this thing called creative cities. And the idea was that creative people want to live around other creative people. And so if you could attract artists and edgy people and then you could build amenities, it would attract, you know, creative tech people and then companies would come and then you would sort of win the competition and you would get in this virtuous cycle. And and uh, so Richard Florida wrote that and it was very influential. I mean, I used to work at Newsweek. I remember I wrote a cover story about this and we chose creative cities like Austin and stuff. But then a few years later, he wrote another book, you know, by the time I was working on my book saying, oh, sorry, I was wrong. You know, and I and I talked to him and he said, you know, nobody predicted that prices would rise this high. Um, so, yeah, we still haven't figured out what to do about it. And and the backlash continues. I mean, just just uh, I think it was last week there was a, a former Giuliani guy who's a developer who wanted to build this this uh, project on 145th Street. And and um, well, it, it's sort of unclear what happened, but he, he ended up walking away because, uh, you know, the socialist city council person representing that area demanded more affordable housing than than he was willing to build. But it sounds like, you know, they wanted that space used maybe even for low income housing. Um, they didn't want their neighborhood gentrified. So I'm not sure how we solve the problem. Some people have said, you know, more transportation so that people can get to the city for jobs easier. Um, but, you know, there's there's just not enough uh, housing for the number of people that want to live in New York. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Adam Piore, P-I-O-R-E. His latest book, The New Kings of New York, Renegades, Moguls, Gamblers, and the Remaking of the World's Most Famous Skyline, is published by The Real Deal, which is a company he has uh, been writing for for over a decade now. Uh, what role does Donald Trump play in this story? Well, yeah, Donald Trump is an interesting character. I mean, at one point I had a chat. A Donald Trump is an interesting his... character? Oh, gee. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, he, yeah. You know, he's very colorful. Um, I had a chapter on him and another chapter on Jared Kushner. But, uh, you know, by the time I was finishing up this book, mm. we were so, I was so sick of reading about Donald Trump. So he he just makes certain appearances you know i mean he was one of the first people his first deal uh was to to um you know buy the commodore hotel in the basic in the in the 70s at the bottom of the market when you know which was next to grand central station and um his father fred trump compared it to you know fighting for a seat on on the titanic and uh and and all the buildings around it were bankrupt but he was able to he was so well connected even then, and he had so many lobbyists on his payroll and connected people. He was able to lobby for these tax breaks, which and also carte blanche to kind of do what he wanted. And but that project, even though it was a, like a sweet deal for him, really um, came at the bottom of the market. And a lot of people actually do point to it and say this was, you know, one of the key projects, you know, when New York was bottoming out. Um, and so he cleaned up in that, and then you know he he got all these other deals and then we all know what happened he he overextended himself but he still um makes some appearances i mean he built this project with backers at the at the um the northern end of columbus circle uh the old gulf and western building and they they uh it, it like swayed in the wind and they they were able to strengthen it and they got some of the highest rents so that kind of paved the way for they got the highest rents for the hotels and that kind of paved the way for the columbus circle redevelopment and he was a finalist for that so one of my you know one of my favorite anecdotes is steve ross was he he desperately wanted to win the project and was kind of a, a, a underdog at the time and he would he would take the mta people who were interviewing the finalists, the, the MTA's investment bankers were told, you know, get some finalists, get them to their best and final offer. And then, you know, we'll take it from there, uh, you know, because we don't want people to renegotiate. So Trump was one of the five and Steve Ross was one of the five. And Steve Ross, he took them to his window and said, I look at Columbus Circle every day. I, you know, I want to build this. I have to build this. And uh, whereas Trump, when they went to meet with him, he um the meeting was interrupted. He had a call put through by his secretary and he managed to, you know, you can visualize this. He managed to convey with hand signals and, and, um, you know, the expression of his face that uh, it was Brian Gumbel calling and he was getting a divorce and wanted advice hmm. on how to handle the tabloids. So I don't know. That's kind of an interest. So he makes little kind of appearances like that. I was, um, and I was forced to stay at one of his hotels downtown, uh, during a time when uh, uh, there, uh, it was hard to take public transportation. And it was one of the worst hotels I've ever been in. He, I, I, maybe it was on Spring Street or somewhere around there. Uh, he no longer, it's no longer part of his, uh, one of his properties. But I was stunned by how uncomfortable the room was. But that's a whole other thing. Um, why is Kent Swig so prominent in your book? 
he uh, plays a major role in the story. And uh, I have to be honest, uh, I'm not part of New York real estate, so the name was, uh, I was unfamiliar with that name. Yeah, uh, well, his family is, he, he's another guy who was sort of at the center of things for a time. And, um, you know, I had, so I had all these um, moguls who were very successful, like Steve Ross and Gary Barnett, and were at the center of kind of driving the transformation of the city. But but one thing that really interested me about Kent Swig is, well, for one thing, he's kind of real estate royalty, like his grandfather started the, the Fairmont Hotel chain, which is a famous hotel in San Francisco, and his family has been around for a couple generations. Uh, but, you know, I guess they're better known on the West Coast. Uh, but he and he married Harry Macklow's uh, daughter and Harry Macklow is this prominent developer, as, as you know, we, we've talked mm. about him. And he lived at um, he lived at 740 Park Avenue, which is the most prestigious co-op. That's where, you know, Steve Schwartzman lives. And and uh, and and he was sort of this golden boy of the New York City real estate industry and and uh, a real emerged as sort of the spokesman. He's sort of this blonde you know, surfer type who went to Brown and, and comes across as sort of more laid back. Um, and he had, he had become a major spokesman for the redevelopment of the downtown and had bought all these, uh, these buildings there. But um, eventually during the subprime crisis, he, he went belly up and, um, and, and sort of became a symbol for um, all these bad things that were happening. I mean, the week before Lehman crashed, he was attacked with an ice bucket by mm -hmm. one of his partners. When after Lehman crashed, when the media found out about that, it seemed to illustrate everything that people suspected was going on behind closed doors. So, you know, everybody dwelled on that and he got all this negative media. His wife divorced him. They had to sell the condo, the, the co-op at 740. Um, he, had, he had also taken out all these loans, which allowed people to go after his personal possessions. And, um, and then his father, Harry Macklow, who's very charming, but also very vindictive, kind of went after him. And so it was this really high profile fall from grace. And I was just, I and was then he really interesting. Isn't he but, also, he, he's recovered, hasn't he? He's also your current landlord. My current landlord? Didn't I, not, well, didn't I read that? No, okay. No, not, well, I moved, I was priced out of the city years ago, but. <laughs> Hasn't he gotten into cryptocurrencies recently? <laughs> oh yeah, he's gotten into cryptocurrencies and, and he's, um, he has also, uh, you know, he own, he's one of the owners of Brown Harris Stevens, you know, which is a major real estate firm. But the point is, is like uh, his credit cards were frozen and, and I just wanted to know what it was like, you know, to, to be because you hear about that with developers all the time that they, you know, go bankrupt. And I mean, how could you what would that be like to be divorced, sleeping on couches, your credit cards frozen, you've grown up with money, all of a sudden your bankers are offering to buy you groceries and I just wanted to know what it was like to be at the center of one of these media storms. And he was willing to share that with me because mm -hmm. a couple of years had passed. And uh, and and so it added a human element. You know, I didn't want it to just be a business story. I, I like writing about characters, you know. And uh, and so I just he was willing to share with me what that was like and and sort of some of the wisdom from it, which even though I'll never be a real estate developer, I think is is very useful, which he, he said that the most useful advice he got was, when you're in crisis, respond, don't react. Um, so that's, you know, kind of how he got through it. And there was all sorts of interesting financial maneuverings that went on behind the scenes to extract himself from this. And then also he was, 
even before that, he was involved in one of these vicious, a vicious tenant fight, fight with tenants around the time of Stytown. He took over this building called the Sheffield, and he also was trying to, you know, he had some battles with tenants and there were all these protests and he hired a marching band to drown out their protests and did some stuff that didn't make him look particularly good. But he was sort of at the center of the action. And then, you know, so that, that's why I went with Ken Swig to kind of counterbalance Steve Ross and Gary Barnett and all these other people who did he, not go back. And he was married to Harry Macklow's daughter. What's the story behind Harry Macklow's late night demolition of a building? Yeah. Um, so, uh, wait, sorry. I said, uh, let's see. So Harry Macklow, um, he, uh, you know, he's very ruthless, you know, and uh, he's known for his charm and telling jokes. And that was another thing I was interested in, even though I did get to talk to him. The main reason I, I there's plenty of stories about Harry Macklow. I just I wanted to meet him just to experience his charm because he's got such a sort of reputation for ruthlessness. And one of the things he did is uh, he, um, you know, in the in the 80s, he had these properties and there was this. Uh, ban on SROs that was going to go into effect, ban on on knocking them down. There was a homeless crisis. And he, you know, his contractors knocked down two of these buildings that at, at midnight, you know, the night before it was to go into effect. And uh, and they didn't turn off the gas. They didn't have permits. It was this huge scandal that sort of followed him the whole rest of his career. Um, so there was that. But then, you know, he's also, you know, he's always getting in scraps. I think, you know, there's this he got in a fight with Martha Stewart, his neighbor in, in the Hamptons that was in the tabloids. And and uh, and he's also, you know, gone close. I mean, neither Ken Swig nor him went actually went bankrupt, I don't think. But they, you know, they they lost buildings. And so he he uh, acquired the GM building at one point, which was the most coveted office tower. And he had found this way to unlock all this value because he he put an apple cube there and and sort of fixed the plaza out front. And there was all this underground space for that Apple store. And he was sort of credited as having this vision and being this real estate um, genius. But then, um, you know, he lost it. And and uh, so I was telling that story. You know, I talked to the people at Fortress when he called and said, you know, he, he called them up. I talked to the guy who got the call and he said, uh, I need to borrow a billion dollars and I need it by next week. Hmm. And, um, you know, they never done anything like that. And he borrowed a billion dollars, but then he couldn't pay it back so he lost the gm building so he's got all sorts of drama always on, surrounding him and then on, he got he, well i was going to say on the other hand there are any number of people who could have lent him the billion isn't city new york city home to a hundred billionaires these days yeah but the, the point is is like he was able to uh, borrow the money from the bank mm -hmm. but it was so risky what he was planning to do to get the the last billion dollars that he had to go to sort of a specialist hedge funds, you know, that would, would take these risky things. And, and, uh, but yeah, there's a, it, the, this real estate boom and has been fed by the dramatic spike in, in billionaires and also, uh, has created many billionaires. Um, and, and now we have a thing called billionaires row, which we will discuss right. in just a moment. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate. At large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving 
today I want to be part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Adam Paiori. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The New Kings of New York, Renegades, Moguls, Gamblers, and the Remaking of the World's Most Famous Skyline. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's Give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. Do that, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation, $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Adam Paori. Um, I just went through the long title of his book, which is published by The Real Deal, um, which he has been writing for for over a decade. He's a former editor and correspondent for Newsweek, also the author of a book uh, that on a very different kind of subject, The Bodybuilders Inside the Science of the Engineered Human. <laughs> Is there any link between the two? Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> I mean, they both revolve around characters, right? And um you know, I've been a. I, I've done a lot of things in my career. I've, I've covered Congress. I've, I've been a foreign correspondent. Um, but as a freelancer, you know, I just write about a lot of topics. I just love to write long narrative stories and, and write about interesting characters. So, the bodybuilders inside the science of the engineered human was about bioengineering. I think I was on your show last time for it, and we had a woman call in who had gone blind and was able oh. to see using her ears through this device. You know, I mean, that's a pretty crazy story. Not as not not the same as Kent Swig, um, mm-hmm. you know, getting groceries from his bankers, but equal equally uh, dramatic, right? So I just love to write about characters and get into different worlds and and sort of tell things from the perspective of the people at those worlds. So and also, you know, that book was about unleashing untapped resilience in the human body and mind, uh, and what science is teaching us about that, and some of the scientists at the forefront. And this is kind of, I mean, Kent Swig is kind of a guy who. I would tell him, you know, you have a lot of resilience, but also New York City, you know, how does a city change? Um, So I'm just I'm kind of interested in how things work. You know, how did they engineer the transformation of New York City? How do you engineer the transformation of the human body and mind? That's the way I think about it. So so the city was going through a physical decline in the 70s, uh, in through the the 90s and then the 90s and the early 2000s were a time of renewal. uh, and it was somehow was transformed from a place of bankruptcies into a city that had a, a, a place called Billionaire's Row. That's across from the Great Meadow. Yeah, yeah, it's on at the bottom of Central Park. And Mainly really, do, uh, how many billionaires live there? And is it all just because they get a good view of Central Park? Yeah, I mean that that's sort of one of the prime amenities. I mean. Um, you know, in the old days, there was too much, I think, air pollution. So people didn't even really want outdoor space. This is, I was talking to the architects of, uh, you know, I talked to Robert A.M. Stern, who designed a lot of these buildings. Um, and, you know, that's what they said. It wasn't really an amenity that people necessarily wanted before, but it was discovered that people wanted these amenities. But um, so that kind of became the thing. And then also, um, you know, that's why you have all these ugly cigarette buildings, mm. because, the more apartments 
that you can, um, the higher up you go, the more apartments above the, the skyline where you can see the, the Central Park, the, the more you can sell it for. And you know so that are, Gary Barnett, who built 157, wanted floor-to-ceiling windows with little regard for what it looked like on the outside as, as a way to maximize the amount of money he could get for those Central Park views? I guess. I mean, he, he just had a different philosophy, whereas, you know, Robert A.M. Stern, who, who built 15 Central Park West um, on behalf of the Zeckendorfs, and that was, you know, that, that came after Time Warner, and it, it was so successful that people called it limestone Jesus in the real mm -hmm. estate industry, and, uh, and people didn't think he could get that much rent. Uh, and 157 came, came after that, and uh, his philosophy was, well, let's build what the buyers want, and what they want is views, so we'll build from the inside out, and then we'll tell the the architect to deal with, you know, to do that. And so a lot of people think 157 is pretty ugly compared to other buildings. Um, I think do, it's kind of ugly, to be honest. Do people actually but, um, live there? I've heard that many of these buildings uh, are pretty empty most of the time. Yeah, some of them are. It's it's hard to tell. Um, but, yeah, they and, and that's another phenomenon that has occurred. You know, people call um, – they, they call these, these condos, you know, the uh, – the world's most expensive safety deposit boxes. Mm -hmm. And and that's part of what happened. I mean, you had Trump Tower and some of these condos where, you know, famously the Saudi Arabian arms dealer li lived in this place uh, called Olympic Towers, where he hired a crane to to put his his uh, grand piano through the window in the 80s. But really, you didn't have that many um, uh, condos like this. And again, 15th Central Park West was one of the you know, the, the thing that changed everything, because what they did is they 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 owned uh, Brown Harris Stevens with Ken Swig and they could see that uh, they were ta always talking to their brokers. This is the Zeckendorf brothers. They're always talking to their brokers saying, what do you need? What do you need? And they said, well, we need more, you know, huge family apartments for basically rich people. But they said, you know, six, eight, eight room apartments because uh, people are moving back and there's you can't get those co-ops anymore. So they so what the Zeckendorf did is they built a building that was like the co-ops where, you know, the old money always lived on the Upper East Side, but they built it as condos so you didn't have to get through the co-op board. Um, so that opened up, you know, all sorts of shady foreign buyers, right? The, like the, their Russian identities oligarchs. are concealed by shell corporations? Yeah, um, you know, and, and that's also part, part of the book, and it, it's interesting. I mean, there's, um, there is a huge um, loophole in federal laws, um, and, and those loopholes have been closed in places in, in Europe in recent years, but not so much in the U.S., which allow you to kind of conceal your identity behind these, these shell LLC companies. Um, so often we don't know who the buyers are. Uh, recently, the U.S., you know, they were, they were going to close this after 9-11 with the Patriot Act, and they, they, in, they had more disclosure requirements for banks, but they ended up exempting real estate at the last minute because treasury was kind of overwhelmed and they never have really closed those loopholes uh recently they they passed um they passed some legislation that will start to do that but it, it's still a problem i mean as you can see um there's you know as we try and go after the the assets of russian oligarchs it's going to be really hard to identify which ones of them have stashed money in new york city real estate but they uh, they, they probably do own a lot of these apartments on Billionaire's Row. And there was, you know, a great investigation by the New York Times, uh, which I also, you know, talked to the reporters involved in that for the book, um, 
where they kind of they looked at the Time Warner Center because that was one of the first of these condos to come online and they marketed overseas because they're they had this hotel at the top Mandarin Oriental. So, um, you know, it had the cachet. Huh. And, and so they, they enough time had gone by where people had made enough mistakes. They figured that they could maybe find out who some of these buyers were, you know, and one of them was uh, this guy, Joe Lowe, who had been, you know, helping the prime minister of Malaysia's son, you know, embezzle all this money. Hmm. <laughs> so, and then, you know, you had these, I don't know, lots of Nigerian oil ministers and all sorts of corrupt uh, things came out in some of these buildings. You well, know, there's not a, that much due diligence. How has the war on Ukraine affected the state of these $70 million penthouses that the oligarchs have bought as kind of what, way, ways of stashing their money? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's affected it that much because when the Ukraine invaded Crimea, I mean, sorry, when Russia invaded Crimea back, I forget when that was, you know, 2014 or 15, um, people were already talking about sanctions. People are already putting names there. And uh, and so um, anyone who wanted to shield their identity had plenty of, of time to do it. I mean, one guy who owns a lot of real estate, not in those buildings that we know of, is is uh, I don't forget how to pronounce his name, Robin Abramovich, or is, is that his name? The guy who owns the soccer club, Chelsea, but he owns a couple. Well, he no longer of, owns Chelsea. He was right, forced so, to sell it. Yeah. So he owned, owned a bunch of uh, fancy property on the Upper East Side, and he put it in the name of his ex-wife a few years ago, right, after Crimea. So it's, it's, there's, it's not really low-hanging fruit here, you know. Um, there, and, and a lot of the people who, um, who bought these apartments, we don't know who they are. I mean, a bunch have been in the papers, and some of them have, have changed the prices. Uh, just because they were so high profile, it was impossible to avoid it. But, but uh, yeah, there's probably a lot more that we don't know about. So I don't think that it's necessarily affected billionaires row as much um and um you know it, it for a time it seemed like the the some of these money laundering loophole there's this thing called the geographical targeting order where the treasury said temporarily the uh the title companies have to before they can give title insurance for one of these uh sales they need to know who's behind the shell company but then people just so that kind of people thought that affected sales a little bit but then people just figured out, oh, well, you don't need to get title insurance and then you can avoid that. So uh, and, you know, and there's plenty of other people looking to get money out. I mean, you know, China has cracked down. Somebody was just telling me yesterday that China money, a lot of money is flowing out of China and Hong Kong um, as they crack down. So there's always going to be a desire for these, you know, safety deposit boxes on Central Park. Well, one of the stories you tell uh, takes is about a condo in 15 Central Park West. Sandy Wilde paid $2,000 per square foot for his condo there, and people thought he was crazy. Then not much after that, a Russian oligarch bought it for his daughter for seven times as much. Yeah, some, well, actually, yeah, what it was is is Will and Arthur Zeckendorf, they, they, everybody wanted to buy that parcel of land across from Central Park. But... Um, you know, only the highest bid would win. And and they and even Trump thought how much they were, you know, he thought it was overpriced to begin with and didn't even bother to bid. But they bid. And I think in order to make back the money that they would that they had bid and make a profit, they would have had to sell the apartments for an average of two thousand dollars a square foot. 
And so uh, everybody thought they were crazy. You know, Will Zeckendorf was telling me he came home and there was a message on his machine from his mother-in-law saying, don't worry, I sometimes pay more than I should for things, you know, but but uh, it turned out that they had a plan and they built this level of luxury that nobody had built before. And they sold this penthouse to Sandy Weil and they made all this money, you know, Denzel Washington, Sting, Jeff Gordon from NASCAR, they all moved into this building. Uh, but then, yeah, Sandy Weil, he he put it up for sale and he seems to have plucked a number out of thin air. He just basically doubled the amount that he had paid and he put it on sale and it was bought by this Russian oligarch, um, a fertilizer magnet who was going through a divorce with his wife. And the amount that it came to was, I think it was around $12,000 a square foot is how much he paid. Wow. So, so it was the Zeckendorfs who people thought, you are not going to be able to sell apartments for $2,000 a square foot. And here it was a few years later, this Russian oligarch who seems just to want to shield his money from his ex-wife pays $12,000 a square foot for this penthouse that he's not even going to live in. I think his college age daughter, he was going to put her in it. Uh, and he, he was, you know, having a, you know, he was in court battles with his ex-wife, but anyways, that just skewed the numbers even further, right? Because suddenly you can get $12,000 a square foot, that's the thinking. And so suddenly all these parcels of land around Central Park, only the people who are willing to build and try and sell it for 12,000 square foot are going to win the auction because they're the ones who are going to pay the most. And then so, you know, that drove up prices all around the uh, the park. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Adam Paiori. His latest book, The New Kings of New York, Renegades, Moguls, Gamblers, and the Remaking of the World's Most Famous Skyline, published by The Raw Deal. Well, many of these stories made headlines, but how often did we get the complete story? Um, for example, there was the world's biggest and most disastrous real estate transaction. Uh, do do did we really uh, did, did, did the press get all of the, those stories or did you, did you have to go digging? Uh, yeah, I went digging. You know, I tried to get details that weren't out there. And yeah, and, and with a little time, people were more willing to be open for a book than, you know, in in the uh, than at the time when there's like a media kind of feeding frenzy. So I did um, some, you know, I sort of followed kind of the deals hmm. that that the city was interested in and that made headlines at the time. But, you know, along with other ones that that sort of, you know, fit into this narrative of just the, the arc of what has happened with New York City real estate residentially in recent years. But, um, yeah, like Ken Swig, for example, you know, he wasn't going to talk about what it was like to get attacked with an ice bucket and and also how he kind of saved, you know, the, and his the, nasty the divorce as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was still not that easy to get him to talk about that. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, there was plenty of court documents also. I, I didn't, um, you know, like there was court documents between him and his, his father-in-law who basically in order to bail him out, uh, on one of the loans insisted he sign a, what they call a post-nuptial agreement where he basically agreed to give everything to his wife who soon, soon divorced him. So there was things like that, but also just, you know, like I said, the details of what it's like to go through something like that and and the perspective of uh, of that. But also he went to Fortress, which is, you know, this hedge fund and um, made a secret deal with them to kind of to win the auction and give him kind of a percentage on this building called the Sheffield. 
And, uh, you know, that was not public at the time. He had kind of made a deal that he would not tell the press and he would kind of be the fall guy. Um, so that that kind of stuff. And also just, you know, with Steve Ross and and winning Time Warner and Hudson Yards, I was able to get a lot more detail there. There's also the largest condo conversion in the history of the world. There was a $200 million penthouse sale. Uh, there's the, the creation of the world's most expensive office skyscraper and the tallest condo ever built, all happening during this time. Has, has, is, is that continuing to today, or is that, uh, was that just during a, a one serious decade? Uh, you know, some of it's continuing, but I mean, like I said, uh, New York City prices for everybody else are higher than they've ever been. But um, but yeah, I don't think things are as frothy as as they were. Uh, partially, you know, I mean, subprime supercharged a lot of stuff, right? You could just people were not paying attention to risk at all, right? They would just give these loans to people, and then they would they would turn them into securities and sell them to somebody else, you know, and that and so. So people weren't evaluating risk as much before, which resulted in the subprime crisis. And then we had, you know, this really interesting period afterwards where people had to go abroad for all this money. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, one thing that was really interesting to me was when I talked to Robert A.M. Stern and, and his architects, there's one guy who designed a lot of these buildings, you know, was, you know, for the for the global one percent. They're of the so world ugly. Departments. Yeah. But he was talking about how how. Um, when he was a student at Columbia Architecture School in the 70s, he would go downtown and he would look at some of these buildings. I think it was the, uh, I forget which one it was, maybe the, the Sears building or the, no, the Woolworth building. And he would look at how elaborate they were and, he, and, he, and New York City was bankrupt at the time. And he would think who would ever spend this much money on all these finishes and, you know, how could anyone ever build this, you know? And then here he was during this period, building exactly that type of, of building because of the because of the rise of the global one percent and they were all buying apartments and he was saying this is you know like a second gilded age but it's it's a window that is going to close and, and, the, and these buildings will be monuments to this time and i think that window has closed because the pandemic um, hit in 2020 and 95 percent of manhattan's office space uh sat empty for a while retail stores and restaurants closed um yeah. Are things uh, beginning to turn around? Uh, well, definitely for residential, you know, people have come back. The census numbers don't really show. I mean, I was looking at the the numbers re recently, and they're, they they kind of stop at twenty twenty one. So it's hard to say the population has come back. But when you look at the rent for residential, it's it's more in demand than it ever has been. Um, you know, I don't know about um, some of these uh, high end stuff. I mean, like like I said. Um, at uh, for, right around 2013, 2014, I think it was like only like five percent of the build the the apartments that are sold in New York are for over five million dollars. But fifty percent of the construction was targeting that that um, demographic, right? Because of the, this ridiculous spike in in land prices, I think that has stopped a bit. You know, it's like it's almost there's not that many people who can afford a two hundred million dollar apartment, even if you're targeting Russian oligarchs. But um, but in terms of office space, yeah, we really don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of the um, sort of the the loans have are just beginning to come due. Uh, but I think a lot of people are going to lose them. Um, and then the market will adjust, I guess. I mean, New York was in a little bit of trouble even before the pandemic because of 
what you know this sort of retail apocalypse right everything everybody was buying things online and the pandemic uh really extended that but a lot of people think that um one solution if i mean it's hard to say because after 9 11 i remember writing about how nobody would ever want to work in a skyscraper again and that was like people were saying that and it didn't turn out to be true so maybe people will come back to the office but if they don't uh the city could do what it did in in the downtown which is they changed the zoning so that some of this old office space could be converted into residential certainly there's demand for that um it seems like you know that's where people want to live is new york city especially if they're young people in fact that's what i was going to say because new york is always going to be a desirable place to live but if some people don't go back to their offices what will happen to the spaces that they've inhabited yeah i mean um i think there with some modest zoning changes they could be converted into residential and there seems to be limitless demand for that um but also kind of you know what happened like i was describing with with Stytown, if if people paid too much or, or made bad bets, they'll have to give up the office space and they'll lose that them, and then somebody will come in and buy it for for cheaper and do something that 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 uh, is financially sustainable. But there's a lot of tumult is going to go on in the in the market in a while. I mean, uh, you know, banks they don't want to see their clients lose the money because it's a hassle for them, so they'll extend for a while until they have to. Um, foreclose, but it, you know, that's, that's starting to happen. We have very little time left, just a couple of minutes, but you mentioned earlier Amazon's decision not to build headquarters in Long Island City, Queens. What happened there, and is, how does that fit into the story? Well, I just, I'm just thinking for myself, like, you know, I was in New York in the early 2000s, and when Time Warner Center was built and the High Line came and, and under Bloomberg, they rezoned 40 percent of the city. It just really seemed great. You know, these quality of life upgrades and and everybody seemed to embrace it. And then everybody started to get priced out and the city started to change. And people kind of wondered, like, where did all the artists go? Who are all these tech bros? And there was this huge backlash. So um, Amazon was sort of the wake up call. And, you know, we're still in that phase, like you know, the the. Uh, the heads of the assembly and the, and the legislature in Albany were very close to the real estate industry and they both, you know, went to prison. Right. And now we have um, people, it's, it's just, and also de Blasio, you know, he ran on a tale of two cities. And so Amazon really kind of showed like that this backlash had teeth, you know, that it was going to actually interfere with the plans of these market driven real estate people. So it was a watershed in that respect. And, and like I said, we just saw a big development get shot down at 145th Street, um, you know, kind of using the same arguments that people use against Amazon, which is we don't care if it's going to raise tax revenue. We don't want our neighborhoods, you know, to change, you know, and, and we don't want to be priced out and gentrified out. And maybe that's not the first priority. Are there still $700 a month uh, rent control apartments to be found in the city? One bedroom apartments? No, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. The one that um, that I knew about, uh, they hired a private investigator and kicked the person out <laughs> and converted it to to. Uh, but you know, I mean, for some people who maybe are in their you know 70s or 80s, maybe they still have it from the 70s. 
I'm not sure. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today on this fascinating subject, so important to many of our listeners, because many of them live here in New York. Adam Paiori, his latest book, The New Kings of New York, Renegades, Moguls, Gamblers, and the Remaking of the World's Most Famous Skyline. It's published by The Real Deal. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks. My book's on Amazon, all the bookstores, and um, I appreciate you having me on here. It's always Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Uh, and if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lundetlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. An especially urgent problem is our need to help uh, for help in our tower fund. We are two months behind in the rent for our broadcast tower uh, at the uh, Empire State Building, which is now $34,000. We're close to the breaking point, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to help us out, make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2WBAI.org. We need your help to, to keep bringing you this unique in depth content information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more uh, in the name of London Lopez at Large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The New Kings of New York, Renegades, Moguls, Gamblers, and the Remaking of the World's Most Famous Skyline by Adam Paiori. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we will thank you for that. with a number of perks, including a WBAI tote bag, if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call because WBAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Remember, we are the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your donation... Your support is tax deductible. We hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be one of our favorite regulars, Bob Henley, with the latest on the important news you don't hear anywhere else. We'll see you then.